Hey everybody, how are you? So, it's gonna try something a little different. I thought this could be fun. Someone I've come to call friend and past guest of the show, Brandon Andrus, wrote some really good pieces on hell. And since I see the download stats and I can see how often like those four or five episodes are consistently downloaded, uh, more so than almost any other episode, there are a few outliers, but it's a thing that matters. Like everyone, for the most part, has been raised, at least in the churches like I ran into, uh, with a fear and with a misunderstanding and with so many things that are confusing about hell. And so Brandon wrote like a 10 part series. And so, with permission, I want to go through those with you. And so, I think what I want to do is try to just read them. And so, the words will be Brandon's words. Um, and I will do my best to do them justice. But just sit here and listen with them. If you, for some reason, miss them, I've shared them a few times on social media. Uh, go and read along. They're great. And so here we go. When I was a little kid, I thought that hell was deep in the ground. And the devil was there with fire and pitchforks and demons and a lot of thirsty people. No matter who you are, some sort of hell concept is imprinted in your mind. And whether it was formed by your past or your current church experience, from watching pre-1990s cartoons when you were little, from your hyperzealous religious friends that you now keep at arm's length or from any other cultural reference, there is some sort of character of the underworld each of us carries with us. I was recently reminded of how pervasive this idea of hell is in our culture when my almost eight-year-old son started asking me about it. He didn't hear about hell from my wife or from me. He didn't hear about it from the church that we attend. He constructed his idea of hell from bits and pieces he picked up from television and the internet. And I actually think that this is a pretty amazing fact. While much of the late 20th and early 21st century American Christianity is responsible for permeating our culture with certain ideas of hell, it is surprisingly pop culture that continues to perpetuate these characters. And these characters are what will, that's Brandon's son, use to piece together his concept of hell. One thing that I should note here, will told me, in addition to the devil, and fire, hell actually has ice sometimes. Not sure if he has heard this from the quote, when hell freezes over line, or if he has somehow watched an episode of Games of Thrones. Spoiler alert, he hasn't, but I had to chuckle. I don't want to pretend as if the idea of hell hasn't been significantly influenced by many present day Christians either, because it absolutely has. I saw an online conversation the other day in which someone who identifies as a Christian simply questioned the concept of hell and then was summarily attacked and ripped to shreds by the Christian hellhounds. For many modern day Christians, hell is as foundational to belief as the Holy Trinity. And if you question it, you are out of line at best or a heretic at worst. For much of modern day Christendom, hell is a monolithic, unshakable idea that should never, ever be questioned. As one who questions everything, I have always found this fear of questioning by many Christians to be curious. 
Maybe it is the way I'm wired, but I don't believe something just because it is the only message in town or because someone says I should believe it. It could be the 20 plus years in sales that has made me skeptical of anyone selling anything, but I simply don't buy the narrative unless I have researched, studied, and asked questions from every angle. There is a reason why the scriptures say that the primary posture of those looking for deeper truths in this life is to, quote, ask, seek, and knock, rather than taking everything at face value. For if we are to seek and find ultimate truth, then it is an essential discipline to question everything that stands in the way of that truth. From my perspective, if the foundations of an idea are sturdy enough to withstand honest questioning, then maybe it is an idea worth believing. But again, I am not going to believe something just because someone tells me to believe it. I have played the telephone game one too many times growing up. So while it is true that fear is a huge reason why a few ask questions about hell, I also recently discovered another reason which I think is equally pervasive. The majority of Christians don't ask questions about hell because there isn't, in their estimation, an alternative explanation for, quote, what are we being saved from? Or why do we need a savior? From the perspective of many Christians, you have to have a hell because Jesus had to die for something. And if he didn't die to save us from hell, then why did he die? To me, this is an absolutely heartbreaking perspective. We have created a faith system in which the sole purpose of Jesus was dying on the cross to save us from an eternity in hell. And faithful churchgoers perpetuate this narrative because no one is offering a different perspective. But honestly, who is going to offer a counter-narrative when it breaks from the tradition and may very well cost a preacher their job? I guess that is the luxury of my position, why I can speak without filters, because this isn't job security for me. I just ask questions, dig to find answers, and call it as I see it. And I am not interested in towing the company line if the evidence points in a different direction. This doesn't necessarily mean that my conclusions are always exactly right, but it does mean that I am at least honestly wrestling with tough questions and honestly seeking where the evidence leads. The truth is that I do indeed believe that we need to be saved and that we do indeed need a savior, but it's not from hell. It has never been hell, at least the hell that each of us has grown up with or that has been caricatured in our culture. We are not being saved from something, but saved into something. And that something is way more beautiful and life-giving than anything you can imagine. So if you are fearless and not afraid to ask questions, challenge your suppositions and suspend your beliefs and judgments about hell, then let's walk together to get a clearer idea about who God is, what Jesus was working toward in his life and ministry, and what the ultimate fate of humanity actually is. Let's just dive headfirst into this. If you believe the creation narrative in Genesis, your first observation should be that evil existed before the first humans were created. I know that this is a heavy idea and something that you may have never fully considered. So you may want to rehear that a few more times before continuing. Evil existed before the first human beings. Even more, evil existed before the first decision to break shalom, which is sin with God by literally or figuratively eating from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And that point is essential to understand because to our knowledge, the first humans like us did not have any say on entering a reality in which evil already existed. People talk so much about original sin, the first sin of Adam disobeying God's command. 
and then act like it's something uniquely terrible that this first human did. But we were put into a reality in which disobeying God is absolutely inevitable. There can be no other way. And it doesn't matter if it was a guy named Adam, a gal named Eve, a kid named Cain, or any one of us today. Just by virtue of being birthed into a hostile world in which evil already existed, we were placed into an impossible situation. To me, it's like a dad putting his toddler in a muddy backyard, expecting her to stay completely clean, and then threatening her by saying, If you get muddy, I am going to lock you in the basement for the rest of your life and torture you, unless you say you're sorry. You may be thinking, okay, I see your point, but the father offered to forgive her if she would just say that she is sorry, to which I would simply respond, should his little girl be obligated to say that she is sorry for being placed in the muddy backyard by her father in order to avoid the father's judgment, wrath, and torture? Any reasonable person would admit that this little girl was placed in an impossible situation without her consent and with a threat of punishment that seems completely illogical and sadistic. She never asked to be placed in the muddy backyard in the first place, and forcing her to say that she is sorry for getting dirty seems ridiculous, and threatening her with a lifetime of torture is absurd. If this happened in your neighborhood, you would demand that Child Protective Services be called and the father be locked up. A good father would never do this to his children, and this is no different than our own existence on earth. If God created a reality, in which evil existed before humanity, and then we were placed within that reality with the certainty that, quote, we would sin, then how is the burden on us? Isn't the burden on God to resolve the situation of evil and not blame us for the impossible situation God put us in? The fundamental question is, ought any human be punished for eternity for entering a reality into which we did not have any say and for which we were never the original cause for evil? Because if I had the choice of entering a reality in which the deck seemed impossibly stacked against me and the rest of humanity, with the incredibly large percentage of us going to hell forever and ever and ever, I would have simply never to have chosen to enter into this reality. The cosmic odds would be against taking that kind of risk. But see, we weren't given that choice. So as it currently stacks up, if this predominant narrative of going to hell for eternity also called eternal conscious torment, is true, then 95% of people who have ever lived on this planet are destined for an eternity of suffering in the everlasting flames of hell. Out of the approximately 110 billion people who have lived on earth from the beginning until now, there have only been 5 to 6 billion Christians since the time of Jesus. And that's a lot of people who will burn forever. But are we supposed to believe that every person in history except for professed followers of Jesus, will be burning in the flames of hell for eternity. Further, what about people born before the death and resurrection of Jesus, but who lived in the farthest reaches of the planet and who never heard of Jesus? What about every single person born after the death and resurrection of Jesus, but who lived in the farthest reaches of the planet and who had never heard about Judaism or the saving grace of God through Jesus? What about every single person born into another religion who never knew like otherwise? What about every person who ran away from God because their parents physically, emotionally, or verbally abused them in the name of God? What about every person who never wanted anything to do with God because of the hateful wrath that those who yelled and screamed and damned and condemned in God's name? I have to tell you, and I'm going to be brutally honest here, if God created such an immensely difficult and impossible reality and then made the entire point of it a single decision that we would have to make 
to determine whether he would spend an eternity in heaven or hell, then God has already failed. There is no way any single person can look at 100 billion people burning in hell for eternity, the overwhelming majority of which who never knew anything about Jesus, and think that God is anything close to victorious. There is no good news in that, no matter how you spin it. Again, if evil existed before a single human was created, then it's God's situation alone to remedy. And if the majority of human beings are sent to hell for eternity for something we did not create, cause, or choose in the first place, and then we are born into a random situation that is completely outside of our control, then God is immeasurably more horrific than the worst tyrant or dictator we could ever imagine. The good news is that God is not a tyrant and this is not the fate of mankind. In fact, the idea of burning in hell for eternity is utterly inconsistent with the God that we are told looks exactly like Jesus. Because if Jesus is the perfect embodiment of God, then how could the two be so radically different from each other? And then how could Jesus not just preach radical, unmerited, unconditional forgiveness, grace, mercy, and love to friend and enemy alike? but then have the audacity to tell us to be the exact same way if the God he represents is the complete opposite of that. Demanding the most severe retribution and punishment for enemies, we must conclude that we are either more moral and ethical than God is, who is willing to send billions of people to hell for eternity, or we must conclude that we have monumentally misunderstood who God is and what God's heart is for each one of us and what the fate of mankind is. I know this may be disorienting and hard to process, there is no question that you are likely thinking of all the verses and examples in the Bible that you could use to refute this, but be patient and breathe. We will get to all of those verses and passages in short order. This is just the first step of many. After hearing this, you may wonder why Jesus had to die if he is not saving people from an eternity in hell. And I'm glad you asked. just level set for a second. We've called into question the idea of God sending people to an eternity burning in hell, also known as eternal conscious torment. There, as you can imagine, there will be many responses. You know, if you said these out loud, there will be those that ask, but what about God's judgment? And others who ask, you know, are you saying that anything goes then? Those are great questions. And while we will get to those questions later on, the most prominent and important question that that will actually help us begin navigating this topic of hell is, if there is no hell, then why did Jesus have to die on the cross? For those who ask that question, there is an inextricable connection between the cross and hell. Now within this framework, the cross is the only thing that keeps people from going to hell because it is where God's anger and wrath are directed on Jesus rather than us. Jesus literally absorbed all of God's anger toward us because of our sins and, as a result, saved us from God's judgment and sentenced to hell for eternity. Deep breath. Go with me. 
If you go to any church service on any given Sunday or hang out with Christians long enough, you will very likely hear something like this. Thank you, Jesus, for what you did on the cross for us. And what this means is something like this. Thank you, Jesus, for dying on the cross to save me from my sins. Growing up in church, I heard all about sin. I sang all the songs about the only thing that would wash away my sins was the blood of Jesus. And I was told that I needed to be saved for my sins so that I wouldn't go to hell when I die. I had this idea that there were these sins that were infecting me and I was a terrible person for letting them do their bad work in me. And if it wasn't the old hymns that I sang that continued to tell me how full of sin I was and how I needed to be made clean, it was the Apostle Paul writing in Romans about how sin rules me and enslaves me, that sin seized the opportunity and sprang to life in me, that sin was living in me and putting me to death. The implication was that these entities, these sins, were active and alive and doing something to me. And that to be saved, I needed to be washed of these sins that I have allowed to rule, reign, enslave, deceive, and kill me. The thing that we fail to realize was that Paul was a writer who used literary devices to teach people and help them understand difficult concepts. In fact, after the section in which he uses personification to bring the concept of sin to life, he writes, I am using an example from everyday life because of your human limitations. Paul straight up tells the people that he is using literary language since they are having a hard time understanding sin. Paul anthropomorphizes sin and gives it human characteristics as a teaching tool. But as modern day readers, we have a real tendency to read ancient scriptures flatly and at face value, taking everything literally. And as a result, we have taken this literary language and created theologies and doctrines about sin as an entity that infects us and enslaves us that needs to be cleaned, cured, washed away, and put into remission. All the while, we have been told that we are horrible wretches who deserve God's wrath, punishment, and hell because of our sins. And then we have turned Jesus and the cross into a cosmic magic trick to take away these sins, these dark stains, these evil blemishes, so that we will be saved from God's wrath and escape the flames of hell. But of course, I have a few questions about all of this. What if this narrative has been wrong all along? What if our misunderstanding of Paul's literary language led us to certain conclusions about sin that we were just that were just plain wrong? What if sin isn't something that has to be cured or put into remission in order to save us from hell? What if sin is something else entirely? And what if an accurate understanding of it will help us understand what hell really is? Now, I don't know about you, but I'm very eager to find out. Now, Brandon has previously written about the original Greek word for sin. Now, bear with me here. I don't know how to pronounce Greek words, so I'm going to call it hamartia. And that word means to be without a share in, or to miss the mark, or to stray. As you have heard before, it is a Greek archery term that indicates missing the mark. It's a relational position. In fact, to go a bit deeper, the root words for hamartia are a, which means not, and meros, a part or share of, which is absolutely fascinating. The word hamartia indicates that in our relational disunion with God, we are not taking part in our part or share of this abundance. That is the definition of sin, and it sounds a whole lot different than everything we've been told. 
when we live out of our relational disunion with that which is life and love, namely God, our lives begin to look less than life and love. And that is truly what sin is. It is living out of disunion with God. Sin is not a thing, nor is it an entity that infects us. It is a position of disunion out of which we begin to live our lives. And our sins are simply an outflow of this broken relationship. So when you hear a line like, for the wages of sin is death, it is not talking about an entity that infects us and causes us to die. Rather, it is the price we pay for living in disunion from the one who gives life. So it shouldn't be a surprise that God's intention for us has never been about sending us to heaven or hell because of our sins. God's intention has always been welcoming us back into a relationship, into union. It has always been about reconciliation or bringing each of us back together with God in wholeness. Shalom. It has always been about God offering us life in an abundant relationship and longing for us to enjoy our portion of this abundance. You don't believe me? Let's look at a few parables and stories of Jesus because what you'll discover is absolutely, positively mind-blowing. And I promise you have never looked at sin, the cross, or the idea of hell from this perspective. So when we look at the parables of Jesus, we find the themes of disunion, reunion, and celebration all over the place. Here are a few examples. The parables of the buried treasure and the pearl of great value are about our individual search to find something of great value. The parables of the lost sheep and the lost coin are about God seeking to reunite with something of great value. The parable of the ten virgins is about eagerly awaiting and anticipating reunion. Those are just a few small parables with the ideas of disunion and reunion at the very heart. But there are a couple of other narratives that blow this idea wide open. First, there is the account of the rich young ruler, which has been widely misunderstood. Most people think that when he approaches Jesus, he is asking, what must I do to go to heaven? But that isn't what he's asking at all. By looking at the original Greek, his question is actually closer to saying something like this. What must I do to presently receive a part or portion of the age to come? Now, that Greek word there is kleronomio, kleronomio which means to receive a part or a portion. And the young man knows that there is an abundance that he is missing, and he wants to know how he can presently receive a part or portion of this abundance. Do you remember our definition of sin just a minute ago? The word hamartia indicates that in our relational disunion with God, we are not presently taking part in our share of this abundance. And that is where we find the rich young ruler. You could say that he is in sin, despite his diligence in following the law. He is presently in a position of disunion with the divine, and he realizes that he does not have a part or share in this abundance that he sees in Jesus. Mind-blowing. And then there's the parable of the prodigal son. Again, it is a story about relational disunion, but it's also a story about reunion and celebration. It is about a son throwing away his part or his portion and then coming home to the open arms of the father who throws a celebration on his behalf. And while his older brother was angry at the father's graciousness toward his brother, the father reminded him, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. Not only did he say that to the embittered older brother, 
he demonstrated it to the prodigal who had already received his part or portion and he'd thrown it away. This is absolutely beautiful. Listen to me. Even in the son's relational disunion, his sin, even when the son had thrown away his present, part and portion, also his sin, the father never changed. The son was always with him and everything the father had was the son's to receive the entire time, even in his disunion. And the father proved it when he came home. Now, I hope that you're tracking with like I am, because all of this leads to one fundamental question about sin, the cross, and hell. If the cross isn't Jesus taking away these sins that have infected us, and if the cross isn't Jesus shielding us from God's wrath and eventual hell, then what exactly is it? What we find from the words of Paul when he isn't using literary language and when he is actually engaging in some straight talk is that the cross is a peace offering from God to us. Yes, God is bringing a sacrifice to us in order to make peace. Paul writes in Colossians, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Jesus and through him to reconcile himself to all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace or shalom through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated, you were in relational disunion from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. In all the ways we have wrongly believed that God wants to pour out his wrath on us because of our sins, and in all the ways we continue to obsessively say we are sorry for our sins to appease a God we view as temperamental, the cross was actually God making a peace sacrifice to us. The cross was God metaphorically waving the white flag of surrender to us, shouting as loudly as possible that there has never been hostility toward us, only love and invitation. The truth is that we have only ever been separated or alienated from God in our minds. Like the prodigal son who squandered his portion of the father's abundance, he probably thought his father would be full of hostility and vengeance toward him. But the father's love never changed the entire time he was gone, nor when he returned. It was only open arms. Are you hearing me? Open arms. Yes, even when we create this distance from God, even when we walk away from this abundance, even when we wrongly believe that God is hostile toward us because of our sins, and the Father has always been standing there saying, you are always with me. Even when you went away and left this abundance, you have always been welcomed back. Nothing has changed with me. You have always been worthy. You have always been loved. The inheritance is always yours. It always has been. The Father has always been loving and always generously giving. The Father has always been welcoming us back into a relationship, even when we have mistakenly believed that the Father was full of vengeance and was our enemy. But the truth is that we have only ever been alienated from God in our minds. And that is exactly what we find in the words of Paul and Jesus. God is not a hostile, wrath-filled God ready to punish the unrepentant by throwing them into hellfire for eternity but a father who has always been seeking, pursuing, and longing for a relationship with us, even when we are in relational disunion, even when we are not taking part in our share of God's abundance, both of those things being said. But what we also find is a God who is willing to let us make our own decision in walking away from this relationship, and who is willing to let us leave the abundance found in this relationship. And this is the next essential step in understanding God's judgment, the inherent consequence of relational disunion. And this is what hell actually is.
God is not a vengeful, wrath-filled God ready to punish the unrepentant by sending them to hell for eternity, but rather a Father who has always been seeking, pursuing, and longing for relationship with us. Even when we have created relational distance from God, even when we have lived out of disunion, the Father has always been welcoming us back with open arms, saying, You are always with me. Everything that I have is yours, even when you've walked away. Now there will be those in listening to the previous who view God very differently and who believe that I'm painting too generous a picture of God by focusing on God's love, mercy, and forgiveness to the neglect of God's wrath and judgment, which we'll get to later on. But first, it is essential to understand the nature and character of God before we can even begin to understand anything else. I view the biblical narrative as an unfolding revelation of God's true nature and character that ultimately and definitively culminates in Jesus. Early in the story, rays of God's true nature would occasionally break through the dark clouds and shadows of human misconception. But even in that time, God's full revelation was still obscured and not fully visible. What we find in the biblical narrative is a story of humanity projecting and attributing their tribalism, barbarism, nationalism, ethnocentrism, xenophobia, misogyny, and genocide onto God like many of us still do today. And through the millennia, we find God patiently and lovingly absorbing these character assaults while bearing with and many times accommodating these mischaracterizations until God's full nature and character is finally and ultimately revealed in Christ. How extraordinarily patient and loving and beautiful is the God revealed in Jesus. In Jesus, the true light of the world, God's nature and character was fully revealed without occlusion. And what we discover is not a hostile, retributive, or punishing disposition, but a patient, forgiving love that gives of itself, even to the point of death, for friend and enemy alike. And that is who God has always been. So in all the ways God was previously understood, and in all the ways we have manufactured a God in our own image, these inferior portraits of God should all now completely fade into how God is understood through the embodied and crucified Christ. The revelation of God in Jesus supersedes all other characters of God because it is the only image that fully captures who God is. Despite Old Testament depictions of God as a petulant, vindictive, vengeful, and monstrous deity, we are to no longer view God in that way. Because in Jesus, Paul writes, we discover the image of the invisible God. And as Jesus says about himself, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. We can trust both of these voices in their conclusion that the nature and character of God is exactly like Jesus. Even more, in Jesus' actual teachings, he begins to redefine people's ideas of God. While there are countless examples of Jesus revealing the true heart of God as non-retributive, non-violent, and enemy-loving, one of the single greatest examples may not even be evident to the casual reader. On the Sabbath, Jesus went to the synagogue, as was the custom, and when he got there, he took the scroll of Isaiah and began to read. The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, while reading this passage, announcing the year of the Lord's favor, this is also known as the year of Jubilee, would have been shocking enough in its audacity, positioning Jesus as the one whom Isaiah was referencing. It is even more shocking in what Jesus didn't read. 
He didn't really finish the sentence. The entire line should have read, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. Jesus lists all of the attributes that are true to God's nature and character when reading the scroll, but then drops the single attribute that is inconsistent with the true nature and character of God. And you know what? Jesus has quite a track record of doing that. But why does Jesus spend so much time reframing people's conceptions of God through his parables, through his teachings, through his life, and in this case, by selectively editing a prophet? It is because people had an incomplete and inferior picture of God, and it took Jesus to reveal the complete and final picture of God. You may be wondering how understanding the true nature and character of God will help us understand God's judgment and wrath, and then ultimately how we understand hell. Well, we have to know what kind of God we are dealing with in order to understand each of them accurately. Because if God is really like Jesus, and not the retributive, vengeful, threatening character that we've grown up believing, but rather a God who loves us, welcomes us, and longs for a relationship with us, then maybe our conception of God's judgment and wrath have been off as well. So let's look at judgment. Even though God loves us, continually welcomes us, and desperately longs for a relationship with us, God also gives us the freedom to choose this relationship or to completely walk away from it without the threat of vengeance or retribution. God never forces or coerces a person into a relationship. We know this because we establish that those characteristics are inconsistent with the God that we see in Jesus. True love can never be forced or coerced, and a loving relationship can never be built upon the fear of punishment. It has to be freely chosen. Look at it this way. If a husband tells his wife that she must love him, repent of all the ways she has betrayed him, and then ask for his forgiveness, or he will punish her for the rest of her life, common sense would suggest that even if she went through all the necessary motions, she would never truly love him. That's because threatening a person into a relationship never allows a person to freely choose the relationship. It is motivated by fear, not the choice to love. So when a person makes a conscious decision to walk away and live in relational disunion from God and to live out of this disunion, even if God is lovingly standing there with open arms and, and welcoming them back into an abundant relationship, they have the freedom to choose this path. And when a person walks away from this relationship with God, the one in whom all life is found, they are ultimately choosing a path that leads to non-life. Do you see that? If God is the giver and sustainer of all life, then walking away from God is choosing non-life. For there is no life outside of God. But again, God always gives a person the freedom to choose the path of disunion and non-life. And to me, this is not so much a judge reviewing a laundry list of sins and then ruling a person as guilty and deserving of death as much as it is a person standing there, standing before the judge saying, this is the path I've chosen for myself and this is what I want. And to that end, the judgment of God is simply giving a person what they have freely chosen, the freedom to walk away from life and into non-existence in the end. In light of understanding God's nature and character and what God's judgment is, we can finally begin to discuss what the wrath of God is. I remember watching the Christmas classic Home Alone for the first time when I was about 17 years old. If you haven't seen this movie, it's about an extended family 
rushing to leave for a Christmas vacation, but through the rush of the early morning chaos, they accidentally leave the eight-year-old Kevin at home. Running through the early part of the movie was a rumor in which Kevin believed that a scary-looking, bearded old man named Marley had murdered his family and half the neighborhood with a snow shovel and was storing them in garbage cans full of salt. Marley was known by those who heard the rumors as the South Bend Shovel Slayer. And as you can imagine, while Kevin was trying to overcome his fear of being left at home alone, he had a couple of encounters with the old man Marley that further terrified him, not least of which was their encounter at a church service on Christmas Eve. Although petrified upon facing the old man, Kevin discovered from Marley that all of the rumors and mischaracterizations about him were untrue. Not only was he at the church that night to watch his granddaughter sing, he was also secretly hoping to reconcile a broken relationship with his son. In one of the most revealing lines of the movie, Marley tells Kevin, you don't have to be afraid. There's a lot of things going around about me, but none of it's true. I'm not much for movie examples like this, but it could not be any more perfect in the way that it captures how the majority of Christians misconstrue God as a violent and retributive deity, while God is really a God of peace and love and wants to reconcile with every child. There are bits and pieces about God that have been read flatly from the Old Testament. There are passages and parables about God that have been taken out of context from the New Testament. There are words about God that have been egregiously translated by committees trying to maintain doctrines, theologies, and beliefs developed hundreds of years after Christ, but that the majority of Christians now believe is orthodox teaching. Like old man Marley, people have formulated ideas about God and what God must be like. One could say that there's a lot going around about God, but none of it's true. I recently asked a few dozen of my Christian and post-Christian friends how they have always understood God's wrath. Taken together, their responses described a schizophrenic deity that sometimes loves people so much that he would be willing to die for them, but then at other times, a deity that views people, especially non-Christians, as objects of impending vengeance and destruction, who he dangles over a chasm of hellfire for simply existing or for not loving him back the right way. It's the open-armed God of love and restoration inviting us into a relationship of shalom, but whose dark side, the wild-eyed and vindictive God of retribution, is always around the corner, ready to bash in our skulls if we step out of line. And just so you don't think I'm over-dramatizing the bloodthirsty monster god motif, Brian Jones writes in his book, Hell is Real, But I Hate to Admit It. He writes this, Jesus rescued you from falling into the hands of someone larger than your mind can conceive, stronger than the combined strength of a trillion nuclear explosions, a holy God, destined to unload the complete, unrestrained force of his wrath on you for offending his holy nature. Hell isn't your friend's biggest problem. God is. Hell is simply the end result of God's justified wrath. It's the final permanent expression of his anger towards those who have purposefully chosen to reject his lordship over their lives. End quote from Brian there. There is no other way to say it, but this mindset that he just spoke of is sick and twisted and sadistic. And it is heartbreaking how a God described by Jesus as love essence and who was in flesh so beautifully in Jesus, has been reconstituted into a distorted and monstrous deity that hates us so much and thinks so little of us that the only thing that would satisfy his wrath and keep his holiness intact is to violently torture his son on the cross. 
But even if your image of God is not quite so horrific and contorted, you may still be wondering how God is going to deal with serial killers, sex traffickers, genocidal maniacs, perpetrators of systemic enslavement and oppression, rejectors of God, and the like. These people deserve God's wrath for the way they have shaken their defiant fist at God and hurt other people along the way, right? I guess it depends on what the word wrath actually means and then toward what end we are ultimately moving. I submit that the word wrath isn't like a trillion nuclear explosions, unloading God's fury and rage on the unrepentant. Even more, I submit that the end toward which we are all moving is not retributive in nature, but rather restorative. Let's start with the Greek words for wrath. There are only two words in Greek that have been translated as wrath in the New Testament. They are orge and thumos, and neither mean anything close to the meanings we now associate with God's wrath. Understanding each word will be absolutely essential as we look at parables and other passages through the New Testament that mentions God's wrath. Orge, which is translated as wrath throughout the New Testament, means a settled anger. It is not an explosive rage or vengeance. It is not hostile or retributive. Orge proceeds from an internal disposition that steadfastly opposes someone or something based on an extended personal exposure. In other words, as a person exists in relational disunion or sin with God and then continually lives out of that disunion by perpetuating wrongdoing and injustice, it angers God. But it is a settled and controlled anger. It's not explosive. God longs for all of creation to exist in shalom for each of us to live in oneness and wholeness with God within ourselves and with others. However, when a person rejects this freedom and love in God and then goes on to abuse others and perpetuate injustice, it angers God, but it has nothing to do with an outburst of rage, vengeance, or retribution toward anyone. It is settled and controlled and fixed. The other Greek word, which is also translated as fury or wrath, and which is now my favorite Greek word ever, is thumos. Despite what your Greek translation books state, thumos is an ambiguous word that is difficult to translate. It is better translated as, quote, spiritedness than, quote, wrath. Plato used an allegory to demonstrate that spiritedness, in which two horses, one black and one white, steer a chariot. The dark horse represented man's desires, which can be chaotic and lawless. The white horse represented the spiritedness of thumos, which can be noble, courageous, and heroic. The idea was that when both horses are in balance, the charioteer can successfully navigate the chariot. To take this idea of Thumos further, it is one's passion that can manifest in a variety of emotions, from love to joy and from grief to anger. The key is how the Thumos is harnessed. Plato suggested that the spirited energy and passion of Thumos can be guided either toward negative or positive ends but when directed positively, it can be guided into beauty, truth, and goodness. And on that positive end, Thumos stands up for what is right, is ready to defend what is good and right, and is even willing to sacrifice itself when opposed, surrounded, and ready to be killed. That is why it is dangerous to flatly translate Thumos as anger or wrath, because in verses attributed to human beings, Thumos may very well mean anger or wrath as the black horse of chaos and lawlessness overrides that which works towards beauty, truth, and goodness. But when Thumos is applied to God in Jesus, it is a spiritedness and passion to stand up against injustice and lawlessness. It is the deep resolve to defend the cause of the weak, the outcast, the downtrodden, 
the marginalized, the victimized, and the oppressed. It is the passion to sacrifice, even to the point of death, for beauty, truth, and goodness to flourish for all. And I don't think it is any coincidence that when Thumos is mentioned in Revelation 19, it is Jesus who rides in on a white horse named Faithful and True. Yes, the white horse motif not only captures all of the cultural nobility of the time, but in light of our discussion on the spiritedness and passion of Plato's white horse, it captures so much more. For it is Jesus, in his passion, who stands up against the oppositional forces in honor, not to wage a retributive war against evil, but to sacrifice himself in order to demonstrate that it is love, not vengeance, which is victorious. It is Jesus whose robe is described as sprinkled in blood, his own blood, before the battle even began. It is Jesus who tramples the winepress of his own passion. It is Jesus whose sword is the truth of all that is good and righteous and pierces the hearts of all mankind. And it is Jesus and his kingdom of love that prevails and will shepherd all people justly. Had the New Testament writers wanted to use a Greek word that implies supernatural anger, rancor, and the ultimate sanction against taboo behaviors, they would have chosen a word like, and I'm probably pronouncing this wrong, menace, but they didn't. They used orge and thumos. God's orge is settled and controlled and solidified against those who reject the life found in God and who perpetuate injustice. But it is the spirited passion of God that stands in truth and love against injustice and lawlessness and that consumes like a refiner's fire so only beauty, truth, and goodness remain. So next we'll explore Romans 9 and the parable of Lazarus and the parable of the unmerciful servant that discusses God's wrath in order to determine if God is working toward a retributive and punitive end or a restorative end. So this will conclude part one of wrestling with some of Brandon Andrus's writings on hell. I really hope that you've enjoyed this small little bit. Encourage you to tell a friend if this is speaking to you, because I think what Brandon has written here is beautiful, and I cannot wait for you to hear the rest next week. We'll talk soon.